welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. All right. Hello, everyone. I'm here today with Adam Stock. Very excited to have Adam with me today. Adam was a Cutco Vector representative and manager from 1994 to 1999. He's a graduate of Carleton College in Minnesota and currently has multiple roles that he plays in his professional life, touching on a number of different aspects of finance and wealth management. He is the president and founder of the Next Level Planning Group of Rising Stock and of My Books Pro. And in his role with the Next Level Planning Group, he was number 14, uh, the number 14 revenue producer out of uh, over a couple thousand similar financial reps around the United States. He is also a financial advisor to many of Vector Cutco's most elite executives and uh, successes. And I've known Adam personally for a number of years now within that relationship. So really grateful to have you here today, Adam. I know you've got a Thank lot of you. plates spinning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, fantastic. The plates um, are spinning and sometimes crashing. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. So I don't know your Vector Cutco story very well. You yeah. know, our, our relationship has mostly been built post your Vector Cutco days, but I'd love to hear a little bit about how you started with Cutco and Vector and some of your early experiences and lessons. Yeah. So uh, it was, I guess, 25 years ago. This June will be 25 years in 1994. And I w- it was between my junior and senior year at Carleton. And I was at my brother's high school reunion. And I saw a flyer on a car that said, whatever it said, I took the flyer, I called the number. And next thing I know, I was in training. Uh, my district manager was Ben Amponen. Ben. And my first division manager was Dave Durand. All right. So I was a sales rep. My first summer, I was number 40 in the nation out of 18,000 or however many. I earned a scholarship. And that was a great accomplishment. A lot of adversity that summer uh, that I was able to work through. And I only had 10 weeks because at Carleton, we get out the middle of June. So I had only 10 weeks to sell. And then I was a branch manager the next summer and a district manager that fall. I graduated early from Carleton uh, with a double major so that I can open my office. And I moved to uh, Shearerville, Indiana, because I ran an office in Homewood, Illinois, which was just over the border. And my first roommate 
when I graduated from college was none other than Michael J. Muriel. Oh, who was, wow. Who was then running a district office in Merrillville, Indiana. Wow. So you were roommates with Mike Muriel. That's true. Oh, that's awesome. Of course, he has also been a guest here and currently the central region manager for Cutco and Vector. Wow, that's interesting. And well, a close friend and lives about a half a mile from me. So Yeah, you guys yeah. both live there in Evanston, Illinois these days. So nice. What were some of the early lessons you learned from your Cutco Vector experience that you feel have stuck with you uh, in your career? Yeah, so many. I think uh, the ones that come to my mind are the importance of having a positive attitude. And my mom always said to me, it's really easy to have a positive attitude when things are going well, but not easy to have a positive attitude when things aren't going so well. And that was really important. I definitely was an opportunity for me to a proving ground for me to work really hard and see some success and some correlation between my hard work and the results. Uh, really enjoyed public speaking and getting better in those areas. Learned a lot about professionalism. Jeff Bry was another one of my division managers. I had multiple division managers and Jeff Bry was one of my division managers and introduced me to Alan Edmund's shoes and the whole Bryness of <laughs> being a professional. And I, I cherish those, those memories and uh, bring those into my businesses today. Another lesson is the importance of thinking big. I remember at my first SLC, which is the Cutco Strategic Leadership Conference, I remember Earl Kelly saying, if you're going to think at all, you might as well think big. And 25 years later or 20 years later, that still has stuck with me as a number of things that I learned in Cutco. And I think that's been so valuable for me to work on thinking bigger and bigger. That's great. Wow. So you were with Cutco Vector for about five, six years, and then you made the leap to financial planning career. What made you decide to make that move? Yeah, I felt like I was at a crossroads in Vector. I wasn't a really great manager. So what I was really good at is no matter how much business I did, I was always very profitable. Um, but I still wasn't hugely successful. And I felt with my academic background and my desires that I wanted to do something else, for me to take the next step in Cutco, I would have had to take several steps backwards. And at that time, I just wasn't ready to do that. So I applied to business schools. And I only applied to the top three business schools in the country. And fortunately, didn't get into any of them. <laughs> what were those? Uh, I applied to Harvard. I applied to University of Chicago. And I applied to Northwestern. I might have also applied to Duke and or, yeah, because I remember, I remember the Duke business school's name was Fuqua. <laughs> that was just such a strange, I almost applied and didn't want to get in because I was like, I go to that Fuqua and Duke. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Fuqua. Fuqua. <laughs> I'm sure you gave a lot of money for the, Business school to be named after you, but that's a tough name. Well, luckily you did not get into Fuqua. I did not get into Fuqua. Um, and so you ended up, you know, starting in the financial industry and yes. that has grown and developed over the last 20 years into really an, what is truly an empire. Tell us about all the plates that you're spinning in with your businesses. Yeah. 
Thanks for asking. Just one quick story. So I only interviewed with one financial firm, and that was Merrill Lynch. That's where I started in 1999. My mom's advisor was there at the time. And so I interviewed with a gentleman whose name is John Thiel. He was my branch manager at the time. And he looked at my resume and he said, let me get this straight. You sold Cutco, the knives. I was like, yeah. His wife had just bought a Cutco set the week before. <laughs> and it was, she had bought a, a galley set, AKA galaxy set, AKA gallery set. And so he said to me, and he knew how much his wife had paid for the set of knives. So he said, listen, if you can sell knives in people's homes, you can sell financial services. And I was a super short interview. And uh, what's also interesting about John Thiel is he ended up just, and he was one of my mentors as well. I feel so fortunate that he was my branch manager because he ended up catapulting his career such that he was the head of the entire Merrill Lynch private client group, which is tens of thousands of advisors. Wow. Really, really high position. And he was my initial branch manager. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. And he literally purchased Cutco like a couple of weeks before you encountered him. His wife had purchased a galley set the week before my first interview with him. (laughs) That's so cool. It's interesting, you know, how widespread the reach of Cutco is and having such a great product that there's so many people that recognize it when it's talked about. And there's a, a lot of people that realize the skills involved in selling Cutco are transferable to a lot of other industries. So it's great yeah. that, uh, that you're able to make that move. So tell us about the different elements of businesses that you run. Yes. Yeah, so the primary business that I run is called the Next Level Planning Group. We're a group of 12 based out of Chicago. We have clients in 30 different states. Around the country, we manage about $300 million of assets. And we solve a structural problem that exists in the financial services industry. Most people, the way that they receive financial services, they have a separate investment advisor, they have a separate accountant, they have a separate estate attorney, they have a separate insurance agent. And like when these people get together to talk about your situation, you can never, maybe when you die. And so there's a lot of gaps that exist. And so we come into that situation and we look at things on a cross-disciplinary basis and we find holes and gaps and missed opportunities. And in the end, help people transform their financial lives and have extraordinary clarity, knowing that things are completely buttoned up and they can sleep really well at night. That sounds fantastic. And, And I can certainly speak from firsthand experience working with you in this capacity, how valuable it has been for me to be able to have this kind of level of service. So I, yeah, I appreciate it. Thank that. you. Yeah, thanks very much. And so I spend 90% of my time, my work hours in that business. And then the other 10% is divided between Rising Stock, which is a bookkeeping and profitability coaching company, and MyBooks.pro, which is a similar uh, type of company. The Rising Stock Company uh, was born out of a need that I saw in the Cutco Company. And so we serve about 80% of the entire manager population in Cutco with our service, uh, which is a bookkeeping service. And we do profitability coaching as well. 
And we do that on an Excel, Microsoft Excel platform. And what we found was that as different managers' needs and sales representatives' needs became more complicated, uh, QuickBooks was really a, a service that people wanted. And so MyBooks.pro was a service born out of that. And that's a company that focuses specifically on realtors and doing the, the QuickBooks bookkeeping and profitability coaching for realtors. There you have it, three businesses. Five kids, one wife, a dog, and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> so cool, so cool. So you found a way to serve the Cutco Vector community after you left through helping managers with tracking their revenue and their expenses and understanding how to be more profitable as young entrepreneurs. And yeah. I'm sure you have a ton of advice for young business people or any business person about how they could do that, which I want to ask you about in a second. And then now mybooks.pro is targeted more at the realtor Correct. industry, which is a massive, massive, massive market mm-hmm. with tons of potential. So it's great to see what you have created and what you have built, Adam. And uh, real kudos to you for all of the great things that you're doing. Thanks. I really want to focus in on financial lessons today because you're truly an expert in this area. And I know many listeners will want to develop better habits, will want to clean up any mistakes that they're making that are pertinent to their financial futures. And I think you're a great guy to talk about this. So you know, when it comes to financial success, let's talk about what are some of the good habits people have? What are some of the most common mistakes? And maybe start with the mistakes side you know, that you see among many entrepreneurs, business people, what are some of the financial mistakes that can be corrected? The first one that I'm going to talk about sounds like a little bit of a woo-woo. It's not, hey, don't accumulate a lot of credit card debt or simple, more, uh, I'm not going to say mundane, but maybe more obvious things. What I want to start by talking about is your financial DNA and your financial story. Because I feel like there's a genetic component here whether that's actually scientifically genetic or just socially genetic, that we inherit from our parents and from those around us. Hmm. And I think that, that that's really critical for people to, uh, to get a, a real good sense of what were the lessons that you learned when you were growing up about money? What were the stories that you heard? And how did you feel about those stories? What did you do about them? And how does your current behavior reflect those stories and those experiences that you saw or heard or feelings that you had about money growing up? Because I feel like a lot of behavior is born out of that underlying financial architecture. And one really quick story that I can remember coming to one of your region events and we were out bowling. And someone came up to me and said to me, Adam, I need your help. I'm really, really bad with money. And I was like, oh, really? Well, what do you mean you're bad with money? He's like, I just, I just, whatever I have it, I spend it. I'm like, okay, well, tell me about what was your life like growing up as a kid? Were your parents generous or like, how did they, how, what were they like about money? And he's like, that's really interesting that you asked me that question because I realized that they never let me buy anything. Like I worked hard and I made all this money and then I had to give it to my parents and they wouldn't let me spend it. 
So here he was in his next chapter of adulthood, like responding to the lack, responding to the resentment, responding to what he didn't have as a child. And whenever he's getting money, spending the money. And this is, and I see this really frequently. In fact, just this morning, I was talking to a gentleman and I, I was trying to help him see a path towards uh, being rich and successful, which those are very emotionally charged words. But what we were able to get to is he said, you know, when I really think about it, because I was asking him to envision earning 10 times more money than he's earning now. I said, why don't you try to get in those shoes and feel what it would be like to earn 10 times as much money as you're earning now. And he said, it's hard for me to get there because I don't feel like I deserve it. Hmm. Wow. And that's really common that people have this inner struggle that they don't feel like they're worthy of growing their wealth or they have a fear of success, either consciously or subconsciously. So I think it's really critical to try to get at that, untangle it, disarm it, detonate it, and then clear the way for good habits. Unhook yourself from whatever those previous stories were and clear the way and clear the path so that you feel like you're worthy enough of having those good habits. Wow, that's a compelling example, Adam. I really appreciate hearing that. What else have you noticed are some of the common pitfalls or mistakes that people make financially? When people are coming out of college, for example, I find that they spend really close to what they earn. And I think it's really important to create, well, first of all, to get clear on how much do you really earn net? How much do you pay in tax? How much do you spend personally? And how much is left over? And I think if that's all people got real laser clarity over, a lot would be a lot easier. But I find specifically independent contractors and in the Cutco world, revenue is coming in. There's a 1099. How much did I really earn? I don't really know. And so like, that's the first step is you have to know what your profit is. Even if you're a W-2 wage earner, what's your take-home pay? Because it doesn't matter if you have a salary of 70 or 80,000 or 150,000. Like, what matters is what am I taking you home? Mm-hmm. What do I have that I have to either pay tax on or spend personally? And then what's left over? So for me, creating wealth is all about creating the gap, creating the gap between what you earn and what you spend. And if that gap is really narrow, you're never going to be really, really wealthy. So you either need to find a way to lower your expenses or increase your earnings or some combination of that because you have to create capital and then you have to let that capital work and create more capital. Right, for sure. You know, I was lucky to have had people early on in my career with Cutco who were good financial examples. The original region manager when I started was Don Mulrath. Mm-hmm. And there's also a legendary Cutco sales rep that started in the 50s who lives here in San Jose, still does to this day, named Roman Malik. And Don was pretty smart financially. Roman 
I remember him talking about how he owned 11 houses, you know, in California and Nevada. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. And they used to always teach their financial principles and that hearing those things helped me to get a good start, you know, at a young age to start, you know, creating that gap and building that gap. I remember Don saying, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. It's what you keep. Yeah, exactly. It's not what you earn, it's what you keep. That's what he said. Yeah. And he would preach pay yourself first, meaning save first, spend what's left, which is one good way to have a gap, right? Is if you at least knock the savings component out first. What are some of the ways that people can do this? If they're not doing this right now, how can they create a gap? How can they keep that gap increasing so they are accumulating some wealth? Yeah, I mean, creating the gap is first of all about clarity. So you have to know where you're at and what is that gap right now? If you don't have the gap, and you're on a fixed income, then the only way that you can do it is by lowering your expenses. That takes sacrifice. So you're either willing to sacrifice or you're not. And then if you, as you get raises, if you concurrently increase your saving, your, your spending, every time you get a raise, you're not going to expand that gap. So you have to draw a line in the sand somewhere and be willing to give up some luxury some hedonism today for the promise of what you could have tomorrow. And I have a saying that you can either have nice things now or you can have nicer things later. Mm. And the marketing and advertising world is so, so talented that all the messages that people get are about consuming now and now and creating that urgency for buying things and right. And I'm not, I'm not a hermit. I mean, I like nice things. I have a nice house, a nice car. But creating that gap has always been really critical for me. And anybody that I've seen that's created substantial wealth, they've always created that gap. Normally, by earning more money. Normally, by figuring out how can I earn more money. Because that oftentimes is the easier road <laughs> than spending less. Right. Right. And as you earn more, it's important, you're saying, to make sure that your expenses go up at a lower rate. So if you earn 10,000 more, that's not an excuse to spend 10,000 more. Maybe if you earn 10,000 more, you spend 5,000 more or 7,000 more. That's right. Three to five extra is going into your future. Right. Yeah. And then making it automatic to the extent that you can do that. Either you have a solo 401k or a 401k or an individual investment account where every month the same dollar amount comes out of that checking account, goes right into a savings and investment account. And I I consider this like like weightlifting. So you start with five pound weights, which might be $5. And then you increase those weights as your gap expands. So maybe it's $500 a month, and then it's $1,000 a month. And the bicep curl, that form never changes. All that changes is the weight. So you're still doing the same principle. You're still have the same form. But like as an example, I have a client who now invests $50,000 a month, right? That's a big weight, (laughs) right? But it's the same form. It's just more weight. And so I think getting in that habit of making it automatic, if it's out of sight, it's out of mind. That's a huge step in the right direction. 
that is a great point. And it's one of the keys that has helped me for sure in my life. Vector created a program through Smith Barney where our people can have an automatic savings program. As long as somebody's either a manager or they're, I think it, it's either twenty or thirty thousand dollars. I think it's twenty thousand dollars in career sales. It's a pretty low threshold. People can sign up for this, where they can have automatic withdrawals from their paychecks that go to their own Smith Barney accounts and are helping them to build this habit, which can start out as you know fifty or two hundred or five hundred dollars a month, and can eventually right. be fifty thousand a month as your client is doing. So that whole idea of a forced or automatic savings is great. If somebody's not in Cutco, what are some ways that you recommend they establish an automatic savings program? Well, most companies have some type of retirement plan, like a 401k. And that's a great way to do it. Another way is to own real estate. So when you pay your mortgage, it's a method of forced savings. And every year when my wife and I put our plan together, we have, this is how much we're planning to earn this is how much we're planning to pay in tax. This is how much we're going to spend. This is how much we're going to save. And then separate from that, we have a giving plan. So this is how much we're planning to give to charity. This is where those are going to go. We include in the savings, the principal that we're paying down on our mortgage because that's automatic savings. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Good concept. So this whole idea of, you know, you can have good things now or you can have better things later. I want to make clear, like, this is not about like eating top ramen and, you know, driving a clunker and never getting anything for yourself. That's right. Um, I've been to your house. You have a beautiful custom home that I can remember being like three levels and like 5,000 or 6,000 square feet in Evanston, Illinois. You drive a really nice Tesla and have many other of the outer trappings of success, but you've done this while building a significant financial portfolio of savings and investments. Uh, I can say the same for myself. You know, I have a lot of the nice things that people might want, but have also done well building financial success. And so people should be rewarding themselves at some level in the present, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's a question of timing. So... When my wife and I got married in 2000, we bought our first home and it was a co-op, just kind of like a condo. And it was right down the street from here. It was $106,000. And I remember at one point that our, our HOA fees were more than the mortgage payment, which was like $400. It was $404 was our monthly mortgage payment. And so your HOAs were higher than that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So what happened was I was working, my wife was working and we had no kids. And so we were able to like, just put a lot of money away, a lot and a lot of money away. And then after we had saved money, then we bought a house and our first house was about $530,000 or something like that. So we had saved the down payment to put a hundred thousand or whatever in. And, and then she was still working full-time. And even with five kids, she still works full-time. And I have the multiple businesses. And so we're just never spending anywhere close to what we're earning. We always have that gap. And I like nice things, but I don't like them before my savings. Mm. I like hitting those savings targets and checking those off on my, on my list of, 
okay, this is how much I'm going to contribute to my 401k. And Melinda is going to contribute this to her 403b. And then we're going to contribute this to our kids' 529s. And then we're going to put this money in our variable life insurance policy and just check every one of them off. We're going to pay our mortgage. And at the end of all of this, we're going to then have the X amount. Like, okay, for me, so people approach budgets and spending differently. Some people like to set a strict spending budget. Like this is how much we're going to spend each month and like to be really strict against that. I don't like that at all. Right. Personally, it's never felt good to me to be constrained towards a budget. Now, some people feel like that's really helpful to have those guideposts. For me, I'm focused on hitting my savings and investment goals. And I feel like if I can hit those savings and investment goals, then if I spend a lot of money on different things after that, like that's okay with me. That just makes so much sense to me. You know, if a person is attempting to establish a budget Really, what they're doing is they're budgeting for needs, but they're not budgeting for wants. And wants show up, right? I once heard that a a need a lot of times is really just a want that your neighbor already has, you know, or your friend already has. Now you think, well, I need this too. And so it's so easy to eat up all of the available funds. And it sounds like what you're describing, Adam, is more of a philosophy. That's right. That people should develop, which is whatever it is amount that I'm earning, I'm going to make sure that a portion is saved. It might not be 10 or 20 or 30%, you know, at first, maybe it's one or two or 3%, but it's going to start somewhere and I'm going to save first, spend what's left, raise my savings as my income grows and continue to widen that gap until I get to the point where I'm saving large chunks monthly. And if I save large chunks monthly for an extended period of time, I'm going to be pretty well set in my older years and Right. Be able to be financially secure. Right. Um, I also want to just be clear that for people that haven't been able to establish that gap yet, setting a budget might be exactly what they need because they don't really have a, a sense at all about where their money is going. That's why they're not able to create that gap. So that idea of putting a savings plan together and hitting your savings goals and then feeling free to spend the money after that it's only a philosophy that's going to work for certain people, not for other people. So you have to find out what works for you. For me, I don't carry much cash because I find, and I know some people don't, you Venmo or whatever, you don't even know what cash is. But you know, for us old timers who actually have dollar bills, um, not ben Franklin's, yeah, ben Franklin's, I tend not to carry much cash on me because if I have it, it's easier for me to spend it. So some people, it's the opposite. Some people, if they have a credit card, they're a lot more likely to use that. And so they have cash because they feel when they pay cash that they really feel like a certain tug Mm -hmm. that they might not feel when they use a credit card. So it's really individual. You have to find out what works for you. There's not a one size fits all. Um, I was just sharing my philosophy of my savings and investment goals. Cause I think some people aren't really aware of that philosophy or think that that philosophy is okay. And it's been okay for me. And when I talk to my clients and I've, sometimes I find out that that's really a better way for them to approach the world, then they've had a lot more success with that than the spending budget. Yeah. That's very instructive, Adam. Thank you for that. Any other uh, habits or mistakes that uh, you feel like are notable? 
I think it's just get clear, grow the gap, and invest early. Get clear, grow the gap, and invest early. The power of compounding of interest is truly magical. And when you invest early, it's just so much more valuable to have those early dollars working for you and compounding, right? And some of you who are listening may be familiar with the rule of 72. It's a very powerful concept. If you take the number 72 and you divide by the rate of return on your money, it will equal the number of years for your money to double. So as an example, if I can find an investment that will compound at 7%, I take the number 72, I divide it by 7%, the number 7, and that equals roughly 10, which means that my money is going to double roughly every 10 years if I can get a 7% return on it. So if I am able to invest $1,000 when I'm 20, that means I'll have $2,000 when I'm 30, $4,000 when I'm 40, $8,000 when I'm 50, and $16,000 when I'm 60, all from investing $1,000 when I was 20. And that doesn't include all of the money that I'm going to be adding all along the line. That just assumes that I invested $1,000 when I was 20 and stopped and never invested anymore. That $1,000 turned into $16,000. So that, that's another thing that I preach and find extraordinarily powerful is uh, the compounding of interest. Yeah. So if somebody can get 100000 invested in their 20s, <laughs> that with compounding interest, they're looking at one and a half, two million in their 60s. Okay. Yep. And, you know, with Cutco, if you're a relatively new rep listening to this, you have a vehicle where you can accumulate and save $100,000 in the coming years, even while you're in college, if you really max out the opportunity. So that's pretty cool to hear. Adam, you mentioned John Thiel as being a key mentor for you. Who else were important mentors or influences or some of the most significant people you've met? Um, There are a lot of questions there. I think mentors and significant people, um, there's a lot that comes up for me. So I would say the most significant person that I ever met was Maya Angelou. And when I was in college, she was a speaker at our college and I got to have lunch with her in a very intimate setting. And she was amazed. I'm getting the chills even bringing myself back to that lunch because I was talking to somebody in the corner and my back was turned towards the doorway. But all of a sudden, I like felt this incredible presence in the room. And I turned around and there she was. And I've never felt that energy emanate from somebody in the way that I that I felt from meeting Maya Angelou. Was really extraordinary. Really, really extraordinary. So as far as like people that I've met, she's definitely at at the top of the list. And you're a close second, Dan. (laughs) Well thanks, Adam. As far as mentors, one of the things that I've realized is that people can teach you lessons that are really valuable whether those lessons are positive lessons or negative lessons. Mm. And I think as a society, we underestimate the power of negative role modeling. So in various times of my life, it's been a powerful force having people that 
acted ways that I didn't want to act and seeing that, um, particularly around money. So a lot of my financial DNA is wrapped up in childhood stuff and how the world of money worked around me and over me. And so I think that the, those are really powerful uh, mentors, negative, positive role models. My parents, um, the front row dads group, I have a lot of mentors today. I call them my Johns. <laughs> There's a lot of Johns. My Johns. Yeah, my Johns. So I know that that's slang for something. Um, yeah, John Kane, John Rulin, John Vroman, John Berghoff. These are my Johns. And I learned so much from them. And I'm not even really sure exactly where to start, but I've just learned so much for, from, from the Johns. Uh, Juliana Ray is my personal coach. I've been working with Juliana for several years. Hmm. I started off coaching with her as a mindfulness coach, and that's morphed into something much greater than that. And she's had an absolutely extraordinary impact on my life. And then I would say the last thing is um, I've, I've learned from my kids. And when my daughter, Eliana, who's now 12, when she was born, she taught me in like a really poignant way that we can have role models who are younger than us. She was born with a cleft lip and palate and had numerous surgeries in her first year. And after her first surgery, when her lip was healing, what I had to do, well, I was the one who volunteered to do this. I had to press my thumb against her lip and her and her gum line, the bone in her gum line, every single night to break up the scar tissue hmm. so that when she grew older, she wouldn't have a big scar on her lip. And she wailed, absolutely crying, wow. just like at the top of her lungs. And it was really, um, it, was, it was tough for me, right? But she was also showing me in those moments how incredibly resilient she was. Hmm. And going through the surgeries and always having a smile on her face. And that was, that was like a real aha epiphany for me that indeed you don't need to look at the gray hairs and the people in your life that are 20, 30, 40 years older than you to be those Yoda mentors that you can look down and you can find a lot of inspiration and wisdom from your kids and people much younger than yourself. That's so great, Adam. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate hearing that. And it just, uh, it's a good reminder for myself and for everyone that has kids or that doesn't have kids. So Adam, just uh, in wrapping up, you know, as you look ahead five, 10 years down the road, what's exciting to you? What most excites or inspires you about the future? Yeah, so much. Um, so I, I have five kids, Dan, as you know, and they are three years apart almost to the month. So 12, 9, 6, 3, and tomorrow our youngest Solomon will be five months old. And last year, I was able to travel a little bit with my older, with my daughters, Eliana and Maya. And we didn't have to bring strollers. We didn't have to bring diaper bags. We didn't have to bring car seats. And it was just like, it was a really neat new experience 
traveling just the three of us in somewhat of a quasi-adult manner. And so I look forward to more of those travels. Um, I religiously do family board meetings, one-on-ones with my kids. And uh, I really just have so much joy and meaning through those times that we spend together. And I look forward to growing my philanthropy. That's something that I'm really focused on is being able to give more and more money to causes that I care about. That sounds great, Adam. You know, I have found you to be a great family man, which I've admired. You're generous. You're generous with your dollars, clearly, but you're generous with your time. You're generous with your influence, with your knowledge. And I think most notably in terms of the relationship I have with you, I can say that you are a trusted friend and a trusted advisor. And uh, to have built a high level of trust with someone is one of the most significant things I think we can have in our lives. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's one of the things I appreciate most about the relationship I have with you. I think a lot of good stuff came out of this conversation. I really appreciate your time. I know that, as I said, as we've acknowledged, you're spending a lot of plates with three businesses and five kids. And I really appreciate the time you spent to give some value to me and to our listeners here today. So thanks a lot, Adam. Thank you very much, Dan. Adam Stock, everybody. Creating the gap. That was a great concept that came out of that that anyone can consider because regardless of what income level you are at, it's possible to at least establish a gap, even if it's a small one, and then be able to increase that over time. I also love the concept of your financial DNA and really thinking about how have you been raised financially by the significant people in your life, starting with parents and then going to you know important mentors and peers around you. Adam's company is the Next Level Planning Group. He also runs Rising Stock and he runs mybooks.pro. I would really encourage you to go to the show notes for this episode because there were a lot of references Adam made, a lot of resources that we can post in the show notes. So you can learn more about things like family board meetings that you heard him briefly mention. If you're a father, you can learn about front row dads. You can read up and learn about Juliana Ray and a number of the other resources that were there. So take a look at the show notes. A lot of good stuff from this. I appreciate having had my trusted friend and advisor, Adam Stock, on today. And I'll look forward to catching up with you all on the next episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. And if you want access to today's show notes, including links to any resources mentioned, visit changinglivespodcast.com. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. I'll catch you back here in a few days for our next story about changing lives.